depending on who you ask. The useful quantum computer could be anywhere from 2 to 50 years away. What are the barriers that will need to be overcome to make quantum computing relevant to real-world problems? And how are they being tackled? This is the team of Quantum Well, a new series of discussions organized by Horizon Quantum Computing. From quantum hardware to algorithms, from full tolerance to programming languages. In each episode, we talk to two scientists, putting their energy into tunneling through each of these barriers to useful quantum computing. I'm Joe Fitzsimons, Chief Executive Officer of Horizon Quantum Computing, and our first discussion is moderated by Gwendolyn. Welcome to Quantum Well. My name is Gwendolyn Magina, and I spent the last 16 years across the worlds of technology startups and media. I'm super excited today to be able to facilitate this discussion with leading quantum scientists, entrepreneurs, and experts. For this first episode, we're diving into the barriers to scalable quantum processes. Over the last five years, we've seen an increase in private equity investment into quantum computing companies, showing a conviction in a long-term viability of the industry. More than 70% of this investment goes into hardware companies, showing the importance of getting quantum hardware right as a fundamental step in having quantum computation at scale. So again, in this first episode, we'll be exploring quantum hardware and architectures. But first, I'll love to invite Joe. So why did Horizon chose to start the series Quantum Well with hardware and architectures? I think it's a natural choice for us. Basically, the purpose of this series, as we see it, is to foster better understanding within the community of what the real barriers are to quantum computing and how they're being overcome so that people have a better understanding of where the technology is actually at, so that they're not caught up either in hype or in pessimism, but rather have a realistic view of where the technology is. Quantum computing is a fundamentally new form of computation, and that means that we need to build new technology, new hardware in order to be able to implement it. It works in a completely different way from the way conventional computers do, and we need hardware to do that. It's okay to talk about algorithms, and we will later in the season. We'll talk about fault tolerance and correcting errors as they occur. But if we have no hardware, then we have nothing. So it's the natural starting place for us. Hardware today, more interesting stuff to come in the rest of the season, yeah? Looking forward. So at this point also, I'd like to bring on our speakers. Our first speaker today is also Chris Monroe, co-founder and chief scientist of IonQ. And second, we have John Morton, founder and CTO of Quantum Motion. So I'd love to have them both talk a little bit about themselves. So John, you've worked on a number of competing quantum technologies. What's so exciting about silicon? Thanks, Gwendolyn, and thank you for the invitation. It's a, a pleasure to, uh, to participate in this podcast series. So that's right. I've worked on uh, different types of, of qubits for coming up to 20 years. When I um, first got into this business straight out of university into my PhD, I was looking at uh, molecular-based uh, qubits but always looking at the electron spin, this magnetic degree of freedom for for encoding the qubit. And then for about the last 10 years, I've been focused around realizing such uh, spin qubits within silicon. I could give a a two-hour lecture on on why it's a a fantastic platform, but maybe I could just make a few brief remarks. It's really an amazing material. Partly, it's around the efforts that mankind has put into engineering it. It's, It's the purest solid that mankind has made. Why? Well, because of the the 70 years and trillions of dollars of investment into the semiconductor industry, which is making the chip that's in your smartphone and your watch and your dishwasher, etc. 
So this huge engineering effort into purifying the material and the technology with which we can fabricate devices in silicon is a major benefit. But then there's also nature. Nature has elected to uh, give a silicon dominant isotopes that have zero nuclear spin. So it makes it a naturally a, a quite a quiet environment to encode qubits that are magnetic in nature. So we're really excited about really trying to leverage those kinds of processes, look at the manufacturing methods that have been really pushed to their limits to make billions of transistors on a single chip with high yield and high uniformity, and try to divert that process towards engineering qubits as well. Thank you, John. Another two-hour lecture, another time. I will be interested. <laughs> Thank you again. So, and for our second guest speaker today, Chris Monroe. Chris, how do you get started and interested in working on trapped ions? Gwendolyn, appreciate the question and the invitation to be here. Look forward to this panel. So your question, when did I get started? I sort of backed in this field a long time ago, about 25 years ago. I was making atomic clocks. In fact, I was a staff scientist at the U.S. Standards Laboratory, where we make atomic clocks out of atoms. And this was 1995. And I don't want to get too technical. We were actually entangling atoms to make a better clock. We didn't call it a quantum gate. We didn't call our system a quantum computer, but we, in fact, built the first quantum gate in any platform with these atoms when I worked with David Weinland at Boulder, Colorado. So I will say I kind of backed in the field, but the science of making quantum many-body entangled states, which is the sort of the backbone of a quantum computer, it became more than research for me. I collaborated with with Jung Sang Kim, an engineer who got in this field about 20 years ago, and we've been building systems for the last 15 years out of individual atoms. So I think I'll be a nice counterpart to John here. I think we're going to look at two quite different platforms in quantum. They have majorly different challenges and maybe different opportunities going ahead. And yeah, these early days are very exciting everywhere, all around. Thank you so much, Chris. So at this point now, uh, you should also see a poll coming up on your screens. So the poll is, when have you started considering quantum computing as potentially useful for your business or industry? There are several answers here. And while the audience is going to those, uh, that question, and, and it'll be interesting to see some of their answers, a question back to our panelists. Why don't we have quantum computers yet? What is taking us or what has taken, what has taken us so long? Anyone can start. I think the answer to your question has to do with the exotic nature of this type of computing. It's just not the next generation of our standard processor. It makes an end run around Moore's law by changing the laws of physics for computing. Now, these laws, again, we can have a six-hour lecture on the laws of quantum physics, I suppose, but they're quite exotic in the sense that they don't have analogies in, in everyday life. The idea of superposition, you could do things with multiple states at the same time with one device, sort of like parallel processing with one processor. And the requirements on systems to be able to show that behavior, that they be extremely isolated from the environment. Because if you look at it while it's computing, it just gets destroyed. And I don't just mean a conscious being looking at it, but any unwanted interaction with the environment. So in, uh, say, John's system, that means really cold temperatures, almost absolute zero. The systems I work with, individual atoms, I'm sure we'll talk more about the differences in you know, contrasts. Uh, in our systems, they're in a vacuum chamber. So the atoms are not connected to the environment because there's a vacuum in between. So there's always some type of exotic 
feature that allows the system to be quantum. And the hardest thing is, okay, we've isolated it. Now we have to control it without looking. That's possible, but very, very difficult. So it's going to require extreme techniques in engineering to really get these devices working. So that's why we don't have one now. I will put the onus on people like Joe. We need more apps. Of course, he'll say, well, we need machines to run the apps. And this is why the field's beautiful. I think it's a big community. Everybody's working together to make this happen, both on the algorithm side and people like me on the hardware side, building devices. Yeah, it's a great question. Of course, in some ways, you can say we already have a quantum computers. They're just not very good yet. People are already making, including INQ, and making prototype quantum processors that you can access in the cloud. You can write algorithms for them, uh, get back the answer. Some of them have even demonstrated this thing called quantum supremacy, where they, they've been shown to be impossible to emulate to using even the most advanced computers that we have on the planet. So I think I agree critically, they're not yet at a scale that's useful to solve problems, but things have come a, a long way from the types of experiments that Chris talked about, demonstrating entanglement between two qubits towards developing devices that you can program and that can be accessed. And, and they're already starting to be a really useful playground, a sandpit to develop new techniques and new algorithms. And that's been incredibly exciting to watch even over the past five years. But yeah, as to why it's hard to improve it, it's exactly this kind of challenge that Chris mentioned, that on the one hand, you have to incredibly isolate qubits so they can't interact with their environment, but you still need to couple them together. And so you're always trying to sort of find systems where you can get good interactions between qubits, but not between their environment. And I guess another reason why it's, it's much harder, there is the quantum aspect, but there's also the analogy with uh, analog computers. So in the early days of computing, people would use, would encode information as, for example, any potential voltage within some range, and that would be your information, analog, sort of, I guess, of the way the sort of early audio processing took place. But very quickly, we realized that this was very prone to errors. Nothing to do with quantum, it's just the fact that any noise would change your information because it's analog, it can be in any of these states. And so we moved to digital information, ones and zeros. We said, look, your information is either at this level zero or this level one, and any perturbation would keep you around zero or one. But the problem is with quantum information, you have in many ways a kind of analog state. Any, the qubit can be moved around between these different points. It's actually points on a sphere, but any, perturb any noise can, can change the qubit state. And so, in fact, in the early days, people said, well, okay, this is a, a fabulous idea on paper, this quantum computing, but because you can't do error correction, because you can't do this kind of noise suppression that you do in digital computing, then it's just an academic curiosity. And the major breakthrough came from realizing that actually, no, because when you measure quantum systems, you project it either onto the zero state or onto the one state, it is also kind of digital in nature, and, and you can perform the same kind of error-correcting methods. And the downside is that it needs redundancy. It needs many, many copies of an imperfect qubit in order to create a perfect one. And that number can range from tens to hundreds to even thousands of copies of a qubit that you need in order to correct for these errors. And that means that if you want to use this error correction, if you want to perform this kind of digital noise suppression, but on qubits, for the first applications, you're going to need hundreds of thousands, if not millions of qubits. And that's, in many ways, a daunting challenge. The noise levels in qubits in the lab are already low enough to satisfy that requirement, but you need many more qubits. So in a sense, the two approaches being 
followed now in quantum hardware are either to, let's say, uh, just focus on scaling up the number of qubits and looking at ways to get towards the, that sort of millions of qubits that you need, or trying to suppress the errors even further so that you can get squeeze out some useful quantum applications even without performing this error correction before the quantum computer falls over. That's a lot, right? Yeah, error correction is a big thing. Joe, I wanted to ask you a question now, which is that apart from the different challenges that Chris and John have just introduced us with, what the barriers are there to building scalable quantum computers? Well, there's definitely a large number of barriers. Hardware is the foremost one, and there's a lot of challenges associated with hardware. And John and Chris are really the experts here. I think one thing that's happened in recent years, to me, it seemed it happened around 2015 or 2016, is that the emphasis went from making progressively better qubits to starting to scale up uh, systems. I guess this is around the time that IonQ was founded. So Chris may have some views on this and why, why quantum hardware looked good to him at that time. But there was definitely a period where the quality of quantum gates in a lot of systems the fidelity of entangling gates, which is basically how well you can entangle two qubits, how good you can do a gate between two quantum bits without an error occurring. That has come down a lot since the early days of quantum computing. It was initially high, and the error rates are now coming down where they're less than 1%, coming down to maybe less than one-tenth of 1%, which is really an extraordinary achievement. But it seems to me that this has brought around a emphasis towards getting to larger scale systems. And you have some problems with making individual qubits well-behaved, but as you start to scale up, there's all sorts of engineering problems that are involved as well. And I guess I will leave it up to John and Chris to talk more about that. Over to you guys. Yeah, so let's dive right into the kind of challenges that Chris and John, you've been facing in building a tech. Because as all of you have pointed out, there's a huge bunch of like barriers and things to be a lot of nuance, right, that needs to be done and detail to get right precision. So uh, maybe back to Chris, what challenge are you facing in building your tech? Yeah, good question. Again, I could speak for an hour on that. I think we're going to all say this at the intro to every one of our <laughs> answers. In the technology I work with, again, I come from a kind of a qubit physics point of view in my early life. But five or six years ago, this timing that Joe mentioned, a few things happened we notice that our system, I call it a system, let me define for about a minute what that is. Our qubits are composed of individual atoms. These are charged atoms, they're ions, and they are electromagnetically confined with a bunch of electrodes. Think of a magnetically levitated train if you want, only these are atoms, and it's electric, not magnetic. But apart from that, the chip behind me, you can see, has about 100 electrodes, and we apply voltages to those electrodes, and the atoms float above that chip in a vacuum chamber. These atoms are affected. They're measured through laser beams, so it's a very big optical system. So what we realized five or six years ago was, and this will get to the, what the challenges are going forward, what we realized is instead of doing atomic physics, we're not really doing physics at all. Our systems are so well-behaved. These are atoms. We're not going to learn anything more about the atom. We sort of know everything we need to. Atoms are perfectly replicable. There are no errors. When we make two atoms of the same isotope, the same element, there is no yield issue. The yield is exactly 100%. We have to make them. We have to control them. But it's really an optical engineering challenge going ahead. And what we noticed five or six years ago is we, uh, in the morning, we would tune up the system. You know, you have to aim laser beams, a lot of technology there. 
But in the afternoon, we were running algorithms. We were sitting at our computers, our regular computers, and running circuits right on our systems. We were not, we were very far removed from atomic physics. We weren't thinking about the qubits anymore. We were thinking about piling the algorithm, making it work better because there are errors in the gates. We can only run it so far. We wanted to make it more efficient to do some type of a task, some small algorithm, make some particular target quantum state. So we've been paying attention over the last five or six years at INQ in particular on making the system more reliable, making it smaller, not to be cute, but when you make an optical system smaller, it performs better. And also we can talk about scaling. If you're going to scale it up, we really need to make it small and modular. We know exactly how our system will scale. Exactly. And what I mean by that is that we don't worry about any manufacturing issues. It's not about figuring out some fundamental physics of how a surface will interact with our individual atoms. That, that really doesn't exist. It's all about engineering controllers, making an optical system better. And so the reason INQ formed five or six years ago is these are things that are very hard to do at a university. Universities are not very good at making commoditized devices that can be made standard. That's really what industry does. So we felt there was a great need for an industry in our field of atomic qubits. So again, I mean, it sounds super general here, but the challenges are manifold, but they're not physics. It's not the physics of the qubits. It's certainly not atomic physics. It's much more about engineering. And this is what gives us huge confidence going forward in our scaling. We don't know exactly all the technologies we'll bring in, but we sort of know what it will look like in the end. Integrated optics is a hint, bringing optical systems right on the chip itself where the atoms are located. We don't really do much of that yet, but I think the whole community is moving in that direction. And so we're, as an atomic physicist, I'm not an expert in integrated optics and integrating optical waveguides on silicon chips, piece of silicon behind me coated with gold. So we're indeed going to leverage the fabrication community out there that has been put to use for so many solid-state qubit architectures, but we're going to use that to help us integrate optics for our atomic system. And John, do you face the same kind of challenges where it's more engineering rather than physics? Absolutely. I think the field in the hardware area has certainly moved in that direction. I always like to say it's been elevated to an engineering problem, though my colleagues in physics kind of dismiss engineering problems as the point at which it's no longer relevant. But I think that's where it gets exciting. But of course, there's a whole set of different engineering problems. In a sense, a lot of what we think about is trying to turn some proof of principle demonstrations that are performed within silicon using very bespoke fabrication methods, for example, in university cleanrooms, and trying to understand how can we create that kind of qubit functionality within advanced CMOS processes. So for example, a two-qubit gate has been demonstrated in a silicon device fabricated in a university cleanroom now with over 99.5% fidelity, which is well above the fault tolerant threshold and comparable to superconducting qubits, if not Chris's nice ions. But bespoke process is not the same kind of CMOS process performed on 300 millimeter uh, wafers, which is used in industry. And, and it's very advanced. You can produce billions of devices, but there's a, a large rule book that tells you what you can and can't do. And so understanding how to get that kind of functionality within these kinds of more industrial processes is a major challenge. But it also opens up the opportunities because if you're using exactly the same or similar processes that are used to make computer processes, well, then actually you can incorporate some of that technology on the same chip and you can really integrate 
the control and readout electronics with the qubits in a way which is much more natural, should we say, than in other systems. But I sort of strongly echo the message from Chris that doing all of this, it's very difficult to see how it can be done within a, a university environment because you do need to pull together such different expertise, you know, IC engineers, of course, quantum architecture theorists, but quantum engineers running measurements and optimizing everything else that you need from the software control to bespoke circuit for the readout. So it's a very interdisciplinary engineering challenge and a startup has been a fantastic environment in which to bring together that sort of team and make progress. Fantastic. We'll hear more about the progress in a short bit. At this point, I wanted to bring up the poll that we had earlier. We now have the poll results. And okay, so 48%, the majority, I mean, almost half think that it was less than two years ago that they started considering quantum computing as potentially useful. Joe, are you surprised by this? I think that's not surprising at all. A lot of the attention has come into the space recently. I guess the seeds of this has, have been sown quite a long time now, both with progress on the academic front, as well as with large corporations, and now with an increasingly large number of startups. And it's easy for people to perhaps see the startups as something new. But I guess, as we've seen, some of them have been working on this for a long time. And a lot of these efforts have grown out of academic research groups that have been working on quantum computing going back 20 years at this point. But it's really only recently that it's seen such large investment and seen such large focus from an industry perspective. Thank you, Joe. So we do have one question from the floor. Peter Morrison, thank you so much for the question. So he asks, I'd like to understand more about the trade-offs between various different types of qubit, superconducting versus trapped ions versus silicon and so on. Thank you so much, Peter. So I guess this is a very broad question. And throughout this conversation today, we also want to dive into a little bit. But maybe, Joe, do you have some broad commentary and answer to this question first? We can go back to Chris and John for deeper dives. Well, there's a number of different technologies, and each of them have their own characteristics. There's quite a nice report that came out about a year ago on the threat line uh, quantum computing poses to cryptography. And it has a pretty good survey from, I think, 43 or 44 physicists in the field. I think perhaps Chris may have been one of the respondents. I was one of the respondents. There have been quite a few input from a number of experts from different areas. If you look at how things break down from that, you see that ions and superconducting qubits are generally viewed as the nearest term bets, as the most likely to succeed in the near term. And those are quite different technologies. There's some very nice things about ions in particular. They are optically active often, which means you can get photons out. You can, in principle, think about entangling devices at a distance, using them as part of a quantum network, as well as, as computers in their own right. They're also extremely good at storing information for long periods of time. So there's different properties to each of the devices. There's different timescales for the interaction between qubits. There's different levels of decoherence, and there's different levels of control. Optics of photonic qubits are special in their own right because photons don't really interact with one another. So there's no easy way to do entangling gates with them. For those, you need to make all of your entangling operations through projective measurements. So you need to set up some measurement that projects your system into an entangled state rather than being able to just interact two qubits. So each system has its own pros and cons. At this stage, 
I would say it's probably not clear yet who's going to get there first, although I'm sure our guests have their own views on that. But we'll take the lead. John. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's very difficult to boil down this very complex parameters that Joe's mentioned when assessing these platforms. People are trying to look for a magic number, like, you know, the number of megapixels in a camera to measure each one. And there have been various attempts at this. Obviously, sometimes people talk about qubit numbers. Look how many qubits are in my processor. And we've already talked about errors and how important it is to keep the error very low. So the quality of each operation is very high. But each of those numbers on their own doesn't tell the full story. And, and there have been attempts to try to look at combinations of those. I think in terms of assessing quantum processors, the sort of prototype processors as they are today, it's really about algorithms, picking different classes of algorithms and seeing how complex a problem can it solve. But if you're then trying to make predictions about which one is going to, and that's just trying to work out which processor we have today is more powerful. If you're then trying to work out which one is going to be most useful in the future, that becomes very difficult. You have to look at different ways to measure scalability, the networking, the optical link aspect of ion traps is very nice. So the networkability is important, integration. And my own view is that there will probably be uh, different waves of dominant platform. We had the first computing devices were mechanical, right? They were gears. We had computers. The first real computers, general purpose ones were based on vacuum tubes. And now it's predominantly silicon. So I think there's every reason that you will have different forms of quantum computing hardware at different stages in their development. Thank you, John. So maybe we can go now to how you're trying to overcome the different challenges and in building your tech and your companies. Chris, so engineering challenges, how are you trying to overcome them? Well, hiring engineers, I mean, <laughs> simply put. Now, if it were that simple, it's been a very interesting many years. I think we owe a debt of gratitude to places like IBM, Google, you know, Intel, Microsoft. They had these are big behemoth companies that had early postures in quantum. They sort of rose awareness in the field on the industrial side. And frankly, when we started our company, it was based on a university blueprint in my collaborations with Jung St. Kim. He's at Duke University. I was at the University of Maryland at the time. And we had a pretty outsized research grant at the university that allowed us to start to do a little engineering to get third party companies to start to make subsystems for us to integrate. And as we started building the system, we realized that, again, I said this before, we're not really doing physics anymore. We're sort of doing systems engineering. And those two words I'm getting, I took some of that in college, systems engineering, but it takes a decade or more to doing it to really understand what that is. Systems engineering is a little holistic. It's like the grand system is not just the sum of its parts. And in physics, we love the idea of some of the parts. We understand every little theory. So if somebody else can do all the engineering, I mean, John mentioned that physicists tend to kind of uh, dismiss engineers. But systems engineering is a really subtle thing. It's like the, a jet engine. It's such a big thing. We have people that think about the entire plane as a sort of a living being. And this is really coming to roost in quantum engineering. Finding people that have sort of that expertise they don't have to know quantum physics, really. I think they have to be a little bit risk-averse in the sense that it, it is a risky field now. I mean, we don't know exactly where the field is going, but we're all pretty sure it's going somewhere good. And so I think the big challenge is getting those people into this field, people that have conventional engineering experience. So we love people that maybe have worked on aircraft. It's a totally different field, but they understand these big systems level issues. And integrating that with electronic controls. And then, yes, there is 
in our platform, there is atomic physics. Laser is an optics. But I see that to be as actually kind of a small part that we have under wraps because we have no problem hiring those people. From the labs here at University of Maryland, we're just off campus in College Park, Maryland. There's a huge community of quantum researchers, from professors all the way down to students of over 200 people. But you go across in the U.S., there are many sort of meccas of quantum expertise on the academic side. So getting the physics side is not hard. It's really getting those that maybe have experience with integrated optics in a lithography system. Make silicon, they use a lot of optics there. Or in chip fab, or in solid state physics, or RF radio frequency and microwave control. So that, that's been the real growth over the last many years that we've I want to say we've struggled. I mean, we're not a big company. We have about 85 employees now, but we're in a growth stage right now. And if you're out there listening, <laughs> this is interesting. You please look us up. <laughs> you might be competing with John here and Joe as well <laughs> for talent. John, I think how we're about all you? trying yeah. to hire. <laughs> uh, so, John, how about you? Challenges? We're hiring. Oh, there we go. Competition for talent. Everyone, listen up. <laughs> There's this tiny talent pool and everyone is competing over it on the quantum side. So the solution is to grow the pie, grow the funnel. Okay, John, on to you. How are you trying to overcome your challenges apart from hiring? Yeah, I just found myself agreeing strongly with everything Chris has said. In terms of the funnel and talent, of course, that's been a big advantage of having a maintaining close links with universities. So Quantum Motion was founded by myself and Simon Benjamin, and we've kept close links with the University of Oxford and and UCL funding PhD students and so on on their various quantum programs. And that's been really important in terms of getting a pipeline of talented people into the company. But also we found that what Bright students have, I guess the sort of the startup route is now a kind of a third route for Bright PhD students that are into this area. It used to be, if you wanted to keep working quantum computing, it was basically look for a career in academia. And now, of course, there are big efforts within large multinational companies, but also the startup environment. And, and we found lots of students have found the combination of working with a startup, but also working in a fun area like quantum computing to be a, a really exciting combination. So yes, absolutely. Talent and, and, and getting in good engineers is key to solving these challenges. And we found one way to address that is, is through closer links with the universities. Another challenge, I think, for all of us is to get people that don't know anything about quantum to start thinking about the hard problems in their business and how they need to know, I guess, a little bit about the opportunities in quantum. But for instance, optimization problems, this is a little bit of a catch-all word, but we tend to ignore them in life right now. They're too hard. Uh, our, our computers, like a traveling salesman type problem, a logistics problem, we make approximations, they work okay. Maybe they're kind of obvious. We take guesses at these. But quantum may be able to really help on these and getting the community to start to think about not ignoring those problems anymore, but maybe learning a little bit about the throw of quantum and working with quantum companies like Joe's company, for instance, on designing algorithms. Uh, I think that's a big challenge too. We need to spread. If we're going to open our own funnel, we need to get the rest of the community involved. Chris, perfect kind of segue because we also have a question from the floor by Tommaso, and he asks the question, maybe this time I can direct it to John and Joe as well. Given the great engineering challenges ahead, what business opportunities do you foresee in the quantum hardware space beyond what we might consider the most obvious ones? I think to answer that, I need to know what are the most obvious ones. But I think certainly the obvious one might be that you need to build a QPU. You need to build some kind of quantum processing unit. But 
if you want to deliver quantum computing capabilities, it's about much more than that. It's about what we'd call the classical or the conventional computer that's behind the scenes, running the whole thing and the interface, which someone is then using it and developing quantum programs to run on it. So it's all that part of the stack. But certainly if we're talking about achieving, developing useful quantum uh, computers, then that's indeed a problem that needs to be tackled from both ends. Those developing the quantum hardware will make the best quantum hardware with the lowest error rate and the largest number of qubits and so on. It's also about finding and optimizing applications to fit on those. Some of the first estimates for trying to use quantum computers to simulate various various, uh, basic quantum chemistry problems called for astronomical numbers of qubits and circuit depth, or since the length of the quantum code. And that's come down by many, many orders of magnitude. So the developments there have been far faster if you're in sort of pure order of magnitude reduction than what we've seen in hardware. And of course, that will slow down now that, you know, lots of the sort of big gains have been had. But I think, as Chris said, it's identifying the applications is important, but also trying to understand how the efficiencies can be found so that they can run most usefully in quantum computing is important. I think there's a bit of a debate to be had around how application-specific to make the hardware. I think certainly that's something that you see around the community, different entities making a bigger deal out of it than others. It's certainly quite risky because it's a lot of investment to develop any kind of quantum processor. And so, of course, you want to make it as general as possible. But at the same time, at least understanding the applications, understanding how at least hardware can be tuned towards best meeting those application needs, I think there's certainly an argument to be doing that as you're developing the architecture. Thank you, John. So let's kind of go back to really the hard questions regarding hardware. So a question to both Chris and John again, are there specific architectural choices you have to make when designing a scalable system? It's hard to prove this, but we're talking about efficiencies. If you can use the architecture to make the system more efficient, I kind of hinted earlier to compress a circuit so that the system can run long enough to do something useful. That you could argue that's architectural. You can take advantage of, for instance, our system, we have very high connectivity. That is, we can do a, we can do an operation between any pair of quantum bits in the system, even to scale. But I think the one architectural feature that I think will, will be necessary in quantum computing is modularity. Being able to stamp out small module quantum computers and hooking them up together. And once you do that, and again, this is nothing new. I think any complex system has modularity. Look at the airline hub system in the world. You know, an airline doesn't fly between every pair of cities. They have hubs to save costs, uh, maintenance, and so forth. And I think quantum computers will, of course, the bigger the system, the more open it is to having errors to being observed by the environment. So by making it smaller, but somehow allowing connections that maybe you don't use so much because you're limiting connectivity by doing this, but at least you can still scale. So I think that's an architecture that will probably find its way into algorithms. When you look at an algorithm, you'll notice, oh, look, only this 10% of qubits are doing a lot of work. Let's make that one module. So that's a black art on how you tie a particular algorithm application to the hardware, to the architecture itself. And I think we're going to be absolutely reliant on that in the early years of quantum computing until qubits are a commodity and cheap. We're going to have to co-design the algorithms and the architecture with the hardware we have at hand. And only by doing that will we be able to get to a point where qubits 
and gates are a commodity and you can just scale at will. Sort of like we, we take 20 megabyte pictures on our phones every day. I mean, that's a total waste. We do it because, of course, memory is cheap. The silicon behind it is incredibly high yield and it looks great. So we're not there yet, but architecture is going to, I think, play a huge role. And I'm not an expert in this field. You should ask somebody like Joe, who knows much more about architecture, quantum architecture than I do. But I do realize as a hardware provider, we can't be ignorant of hardware, of the architecture. And people running, inventing algorithms, they cannot be ignorant of the hardware. They really, you really have to have this vertical flow. And the people at the very top that might not care about silicon or atomic physics, and people like me at the very bottom that normally might not care about what's above the API. So actually, if I could jump in with a question, I wanted to ask Chris and John, what do you see as the role of modularity? Do you see the effort to build a quantum computer five, 10 years from now as focusing on monolithic processors as we are effectively today? Or do you see they're becoming more specialized parts of a system? So at the moment, most systems tend to treat all qubits equally. But if you look at a modern computer system, you have different systems for storage than for processing. You also have specialized parts of a processor for arithmetic or different tasks that require different connectivity. How do you see the technology evolving, say, over the next 10 years? I think it's a really interesting point. And yeah, absolutely. We change our information between magnetic domains to charge and semiconductor to photons down a fiber without even thinking about it in conventional computing. And certainly in the future, maybe 10 years, maybe beyond, in a mature quantum information industry, certainly one could envisage that sort of fluid transfer of quantum information. But I'd like to, to stress, some people think we're in the kind of 1980s era of quantum computing. I think we're more in the sort of 1950s era of quantum computing, where you had valve computers and mercury delay lines. Anyway, I wasn't there, but I've heard about these things. I think it's like 1947 or 1948. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> if uh, we're in the 50s, uh, that's doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think all of that we can see is to come. But really now, I think that for developing the, the sort of first useful quantum computing applications, I don't see that really is a problem that's going to be solved by using quantum memory and these kinds of things, perhaps. And it's really about taking some of these systems and, and optimizing them as well as we can. I mean, the modularity is an interesting point. I can see some advantages that to go back to the jet engine example, that's not modular. You kind of build a jet engine. Of course, you can strap a few of them together and make the plane go faster. And, and you can do that with separate quantum processes without having to make them modular in a quantum sense. So it can help with scaling, but there are very many extremely complex systems, including computing systems, which don't necessarily have that modularity. And so I think it's not a, a fundamental requirement for quantum computing. There are different ways that you can enable that sort of scaling. So in the context of something like an ion trap, this doesn't necessarily mean that you would have multiple different technologies connected together an ion trap to superconducting qubits or something like that. But it might be as simple as multiple species in a trap. I say as simple, realizing that this is not simple at all. But I'm just wondering, I guess, Chris, what your thoughts are in terms of if we're moving towards things like segmented traps, you can think of perhaps different trap regions for different functionality and how that kind of thing goes into your thinking or whether it doesn't at all and it's better to avoid those complexities. Oh, yes. We, of course, think about that sort of phase one of the scale-up is to we deal with a single core, we call it, of up to maybe 32 or so qubits, and they just sit there. They never move. We have a bunch of laser beams that poke at them, and we have full connectivity between all those 32. And of course, with 32 of anything, there are something like 500 pairs or something. So we can do 
any of 500 two-bit operations here. Now, to get well over 100 qubits, we think about having multiple cores on a single chip, like the one behind me, where we actually move atoms between them. Now, when you do that, you are limiting connectivity. We can only sort of hit the end ions, the end qubits go back and forth. And that, that should get us maybe to 1,000 or a few thousand qubits on a single chip. But then the launch to this modular photonic interconnection allows us to go off chip to another chip. And you might think that that limits connectivity as well. But actually, no, we retain full connectivity because each chip has one or more fiber lines that comes out, and they all go into a cross-connect switch, an end by end cross-connect switch. So picture the old telephone operator that's taking any input fiber and matching with the output fiber. We can match any pair of chips. So maybe we have a 1,000 chips all on a single rack mount like a data center, and we have full connectivity between any qubit in the entire system. So in our platform, that's the natural way to scale. And you mentioned, okay, so there's shuttling. We need multiple species because when you shuttle, that causes heat. In a sense, you have to quench that. We also need multiple species to make the photon because making the photon is a process that can't have any, even a single photon hit the memory nearby. So we have communication qubits and memory qubits. So this has been done. All these demonstrations have been done over the last decade in university labs mostly, but at IQ, we're doing all that stuff. But I would say that when we say different systems, the photon, the photonic qubit is something we actually don't use in a single core quantum processing unit, but it is a quantum system that has the advantage of being able to go through fibers at room temperature without loss over small distances. So uh, that, that system, we're definitely going to juxtapose with our atoms. Going all the way to solid state, there's wonderful research on doing silicon optically active interfaces. Superconductors can be mated to a microwave cavity that has a mechanical mirror that moves. This is all researchy. The fidelities are very low. It's wonderful research. And eventually, I think there are ways to optically link even superconductor treatments. But I think we're a long way away before these different technologies would make one big processor. Yeah, there's some really interesting work from Andreas Walroff on superconducting qubits where they've made this giant tunnel between two dilution refrigerators which was not the way I was expecting to chop the two chips in different tail fridges. They're optical fibers that this big and it's near zero Kelvin. So this might be a really great link to the next question, which is along the lines of what all of you kind of just discussed. So how do you go from demonstrations with dozens of qubits, so in many labs now, to production level systems? So thousands of qubits, I guess, or what, some of you have said that with a level of reliability and reproducibility for use at scale. John? Our approach here has been trying to follow as closely as possible a manufacturing process that already produces large numbers of devices, right? Not thousands, but billions of transistors within a, a narrow range of operating parameters on a single die. And that for us has been is sort of core to our strategy, trying to use that sort of platform to develop the qubits, looking at what are the right building blocks, the sort of cells, qubit cells within that process, and see that as a route towards scaling up. But like all of these things, there's a lot of risk involved. These processes weren't designed to develop qubits. They were designed to, to do something quite different. So it's a, certainly an engineering challenge, but we think it's, if we can show it to work, then it's a very promising route. Thank you, John. Chris, how about you? Any thoughts on going to production level systems, linking more stuff? It's easy for me to answer this way, but again, we don't worry about qubit reproducibility. I mean, after all, they are atomic clocks. 
what is a clock if it's not reproducible? That's the definition of a good clock. And these clocks are way better than we need. We have indefinite idle coherence. We can store coherence for as long as we need to, way longer. So the manufacturing, we don't manufacture atoms. Joke is I have a vial of ytterbium metal here. So I have a million trillion qubits sitting right here on my desk. And they're all exactly the same. These are the same isotope, ytterbium 171. So that's really not the point either. Getting to manufacturability is definitely in our roadmap at INQ. We have a very credible and we're very confident we're going to hit this roadmap on the ability to make these modular quantum processing units. So we don't worry about the quantum part of it. It's a pattern I've, I've said over the last hours that is really all about the manufacturability of the optical system around it. It has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. It has everything to do with indexing optical fibers on chips like the one behind me and getting the manufacturing process to be reliable. So we have a long path ahead, but it's very well defined. So kind of one last quick question to link kind of hardware and with a few other stuff that you talked about and also to software, right? So you've spoken a lot about engineering challenges, errors, and stuff like that. Do you see a role for software in addressing some of these problems? Or are they purely hardware challenges? We've already talked about software in terms of developing the applications and more efficient applications, I think, many times. Certainly, there are other ways that we use software in terms of optimizing qubit control, feedback, and let's say, in calibration to optimize the qubit behavior and interpret data. So, And indeed, there are other startups that focus on this, right? Qubit control and benchmark and so on. So there's software is in various forms enters at different layers of designing, operating, and optimizing quantum processes, as well as, of course, within the quantum algorithm side. Thank you, John. I'll add to that. At INQ, given our platform, we don't have wires. Our atoms are floating in space. There are no wires. There's nothing hardwired. Everything is controlled in software, absolutely everything. So I'm fond of saying around here that in a few years, we're going to be a software company. It's true that we're going to have this exotic atomic physics, optics going on in the inside. But everything from error correction to how many qubits you want per core, how many cores you want per chip, how many chips you want in your whole system, that will all be controlled in software entirely because there is no hardwiring. So this flexibility, I think, will be a real bonus in the out years. I mean, I think in the business world, software companies, they have very little costs and very high margins. That's going to play a role in quantum computing business as well. And we already have a big software team at INQ, and we didn't talk much about error correction, but... How much error correction do you want to do? Well, we get to control that in software, and we will as we go forward. So I can't overemphasize the use of software in our hardware. Thank you, John and Chris. But first, before we conclude, I would love to figure out and bring back a quote. So back in 1943, so earlier, you know, both Joe, John, you've kind of like joking, where are we in terms of quantum computing, 1950s, 1940s. So 1943, we all know this quote, but Thomas Watson, president of IBM, said, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. To so the question at all three of you, what's the world market for quantum computers? Oh, John is shaking his head. It's like impossible question, well, right? I think that quote proves that uh, <laughs> proves that it's a very dangerous uh, question to try to answer in 1943 and probably today as well. Which is the reason to get you to say this in a recorded exactly. form that we can bring up 20 years, 30 <laughs> years from now. <laughs> exactly, exactly, Joe. No thoughts, Chris, no thoughts. It's going to be way more than six. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, gentlemen. 
Thank you so much, Chris of IonQ. Thank you so much, John of Quantum Motion. Joe of Horizon Quantum Computing. Thank you all for this absolutely great panel discussion. Thank you for your questions as well, the audience. Enjoy the rest of your day and evening. Bye. Thank you, Gwen. Thanks a lot to our guests and our moderator, Gwen. As Chris and John emphasized, reaching large-scale quantum computers will require suppressing errors. In the next episode, we'll discuss error suppression in all its forms, from better control of qubits to active error correction and fault tolerance. We'll keep exploring the barriers that we need to overcome to make quantum computing relevant for real-world problems in Horizon's podcast, Quantum Well. Wow.